Father, I thank you that uh, you've gathered your people here this morning, um, even if it is a little smaller group than usual with everyone still traveling for the holidays. Um, I thank you that we can uh, gather to hear your word um, and just ask that you would prepare all of our hearts um, for that, that we would um, be ready to hear your word, that we would be ready um, to prepare for the celebration of Christmas and the coming of your son. We pray all this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to be starting this morning in Matthew chapter 1. If you haven't noticed already, Christmas is coming. We're starting a little early. Advent doesn't technically start until next week, uh, but we are starting our Advent series this morning. We're going back to Matthew chapter 1, taking a pause on the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll go back to in the new year. And we're going to spend the next five weeks going through the portion of Matthew chapter 1 that we skipped when we started the series back in September. So, I have a question for you, and you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but have you ever followed a Bible reading plan, and you wake up in the morning, and you see which chapters it is that you're supposed to read that morning, and you open up your Bible, ready to hear God's Word, ready to be fed for the morning or, and for the rest of the day, and you look at the chapter, and you think, oh no. <laughs> the entire reading is one long genealogy. It's just name after name after name, unpronounceable, fathered unpronounceable, fathered unpronounceable, who fathered unpronounceable. I only know like three of these names. It's just going to keep going on and on, and I'm not going to understand any of it. I'm not going to get anything out of it. Well, if that's ever been you, I have good news, because we're going to spend our entire Advent in Matthew's genealogy. If you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 1, let's read the first three verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. That wasn't so bad, was it? So we're going to be diving into this, so we're actually spending most of this morning back in the book of Genesis. And you might not realize it, but Genesis is a book of genealogies. There are ten genealogies listed and even more than that, most people tell you Genesis is broken up into two distinct parts. You have Genesis 1 through 11, that's everything that comes before Abraham. And then 12 through 50 is everything about Abraham and his family. God calling his people, God bringing his people together, creating a nation out of them. And each of those parts has five genealogies in it. 
genealogies are integral to the meaning and even the structure of Genesis. And you might be thinking, like, why of all things would that be what Moses uses to build off the rest of the book on? Like, they're just lists of names. But the reason it's so integral is because Genesis is a book that is consumed with the hope of the promise that God made to Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall. That first glimpse of the gospel that he revealed to sinful humanity in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, he's talking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That promise is the heartbeat of Genesis. It's at the core of it. And so there are all these genealogies, all these lists of names, all these family trees, because whenever we come to a genealogy, it's not just a list of names, it's a moment to build the anticipation. Like, is this going to be the family? Is this the one that's going to bring the promised one who's going to crush the serpent? Is this even part of that family tree at all? Or are these people going to be in the family tree of the serpent? It's a moment to build anticipation. It, they mark new chapters in that great saga of the son's war against the serpent. And Matthew understands this because he uses his genealogy the same way that Moses does. So there are 10 genealogies in Genesis. They share similarities. They have some differences. But there's only one that's worded the exact same way that Matthew words his. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Genesis 5 says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. From the very beginning, from the very first line of his gospel, Matthew is proclaiming, this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. This genealogy marks the beginning of the, the greatest chapter of that saga. He is the one who was promised, the one we've been waiting for. He will be bitten by the serpent. He will be battered and bruised, but he will be victorious. He will bring life where there was death. Matthew's proclaiming from the very, very beginning, Jesus is the better Adam. Adam's family tree was full of death and despair and sin. And Jesus' family tree will be filled with life and joy and righteousness. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ, the son of David, David, the greatest king Israel had, whose reign marked the golden age in Israel's history as a nation. More than that, the one who is a man after God's own heart. The one that God promised your descendant will reign forever. 
Jesus, the son of Abraham, the father of the faithful, the one that God had promised through you and through your family, your family tree, your lineage, I will bless all the nations of the earth. Jesus has a prestigious family tree. At least that's what it seems like in verse 1. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Boom, mic drop, end of story. But he doesn't end it there. He keeps going and things take an interesting turn quickly. The first name that should have stood out to you a little when I read through it earlier was Tamar. That's the first one that's not like one of those immediate Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we know those names. We know who those guys are. We're intimately familiar with them. But how many of us remember right off the top of our heads who Tamar was? And on top of that, she's a woman. It's not unheard of for the Bible to include women in their genealogies, but it's not the norm. So just like in the genealogies in Genesis where they should make us pause and ask, who are these people? What lineage are they a part of? What lineage are they going to carry on? Are they going to be the offspring of the woman or the offspring of the serpent? What role are they going to play in this saga against the serpent? So why Tamar? Why does... Matthew single her out as the first woman mentioned in Jesus' family tree. So we're going to go back, like I said, to Genesis. And we're going to spend most of our time in Genesis 38. So you can turn there in your Bibles. That's where we'll be. But our genealogy actually starts in the previous chapter, chapter 37, verse 1. Sorry, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. And after that, we're immediately told the story of Joseph's dreams, his falling out with his brothers, his brothers selling them into slavery. And then we come to chapter 38. And chapter 38 feels like kind of an aside that's like stuck awkwardly in the middle of Joseph's story. Because we have the story of Joseph's dream, Joseph being sold into slavery. And then before we go back to Joseph in Egypt, we're told this random seemingly story about Judah and his exploits. And exploits really is the only word for it because this is tawdry from beginning to end. This is one of the most scandalous chapters in all of Scripture. And that's a competitive list to get on. The story of Judah and Tamar just feels like it's stuck awkwardly in the middle, like it doesn't really fit there. But that's because we tend to read the last few chapters of Genesis like Joseph is the main character, and he's not. You might be thinking, wait a minute, I've, I've read Genesis, like it's all about Joseph getting sold into slavery, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, Joseph 
going to prison unjustly, Joseph rising to be the second person only to Pharaoh in Egypt, Joseph saving his family from starvation. It's clearly about Joseph. Is it? Because, remember, Genesis is a book of genealogies. This is the genealogy of Jacob. And if we're supposed to stop and ask ourselves, who is going to carry on the lineage of the woman? Who is going to carry on that hope that an offspring is coming, a seed is coming who's going to crush the head of the serpent? Joseph doesn't carry on that promise. Judah does. And when we recognize that, we start to have a new perspective on the last 13 chapters of Genesis. Judah is the one who saves Joseph when his brothers want to kill him. Judah is the one who negotiates with the Egyptians to, buy, to be able to buy food to save his family. Judah is the one who convinces Jacob to let him bring Benjamin with him. Judah is the one who's willing to sacrifice himself to save Benjamin when he's accused of theft. And Judah is the one that Jacob prophesies at the end of his life, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The coming king is coming through Judah. And so Genesis chapter 38 here isn't some random passage, an aside that doesn't really fit. It's not an example of poor storytelling on Moses' part. Genesis 38 becomes the all-important story of the beginning of the tribe of Judah from which the Messiah will come. And so considering that, you might expect that chapter 38 is going to be this grand, noble story, right? Some beautiful foreshadowing of Christ and his love for his people. Maybe something like the way Boaz loved Ruth, like we saw last year in our Advent series through Ruth. But that's not what we get. John Calvin describes this story this way. Instead of Judah's glory being celebrated, its great disgrace is exposed. And this chapter is disgraceful. It's scandalous. It's offensive. It's obscene. It's a world where the serpent reigns free and where the promised offspring is desperately needed. So let's begin chapter 38, verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adalamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. 
Judah's not off to a great start. There might not have been an explicit command against marrying a Canaanite woman yet, but it was already the sort of behavior that belonged to the offspring of the serpent, not the offspring of the woman. You'll remember Abraham insisted that Isaac not marry a Canaanite woman like his brother Ishmael. And then Rebekah insisted that Jacob not marry a Canaanite like his brother Esau. So far in each generation of Abraham's family, the one to carry the hope of the offspring of the woman was not to marry a Canaanite. And it wasn't for racial reasons. It was because if they were to go after them, it would be so easy for them to go after the Canaanite false gods as well. Yet here we read of Judah marrying a Canaanite woman right off the bat with apparently no concern or regard for any spiritual consequences that might follow. So he marries her. They have three sons. Time passes. They grow up. And it's time for his oldest son to get married. Verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. That's all we're told about Er. He exits the stage as soon as he arrives. He was wicked in the sight of the Lord. The Lord put him to death. So Judah goes to his next son, Onan, verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, obviously, the law hasn't come yet. That's not going to come till Exodus. But already, they have some idea of a kinsman redeemer. You might remember that again from our last Advent series in the book of Ruth. But as a quick refresher, if a man died and he didn't have any sons to carry on the family line, his brother was expected to take his widowed sister-in-law as a wife so that through him, his brother and his brother's wife could have a family line that continued. And it wasn't just about providing, like, for the memory of the dead brother. It was a means of providing for the woman as well. In ancient Near East agrarian societies, there was no life insurance. She had no career options. And so it was a way of making sure that she wasn't left destitute when her husband died. But for Israel, it was about more than just providing for her physical needs. Because we have to remember how important that promise of the coming offspring was. Every woman would have hoped that maybe her son was the one that God would use to free his people. And so if her husband died and she was left childless, she wasn't just cut off from her means of financial support. She was cut off from the hope that she could participate in that promise. And so the kinsman redeemer was meant to ensure that she still had full participation in the hope. 
And so again, the law hasn't come yet, but they clearly already have some idea of that. Because he tells Onan to do the duty of a brother-in-law to Tamar, to take care of her. Onan was no better than his brother, though. He could do the right thing. He could be a kinsman redeemer to Tamar. But if they had a son, he wouldn't be Onan's. He would be heirs. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Two down, one to go. Judah only has one son left now, his youngest, Shelah. And at this point, Judah has to be worried that if something happens to Shelah, now I'm cut off from the hope. This is my last son. This is my last means of my line continuing, of me being a part of that. What happens if Shayla dies too? I'll be cut off from the promise. And there seems to be no understanding on Judah's part that his sons were killed by the Lord in response to their wickedness. If anything, it seems like he blames Tamar for it. Verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. If Shelah marries her, he's probably going to die too. I mean, look what happened to the first two. But I've got an out. Shelah isn't of age yet. I can stall and... Who knows what might happen? And so Judah leaves Tamar out in the cold, abandoned, unloved, uncared for, unprovided for. Tamar's stuck because as long as Er has a living brother in Shelah, she's probably not free to marry anyone else either. She's essentially an outcast. She's a wife without a husband. Judah has a responsibility to provide for her, but he's unwilling. He's worried too much about what it might cost him. Eventually, Judah's own wife dies. Shayla grows up. He's a full-grown man. He's able to marry Tamar and provide for her. But Judah's still stalling. He's still unwilling to provide for Tamar. And at some point, Tamar realizes what's going on. Maybe she knew from the beginning. Maybe she didn't really know for sure until Shelah was all grown. But at this point, she knows Judah has no intention of ever providing for her. So she comes up with a plan to force Judah's hand. If he's not going to provide for me one way, I'll do it another. Look down at verses 14 to 16. Judah 
has gone through the appropriate mourning time. He's no longer in mourning. He goes out to be with his sheep shears. And Tamar knows that it's her time to act. Verse 14. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Tamar apparently knew what kind of man her father-in-law was. So she dresses like a prostitute would have, went out to wait for him. And Judah was an eager participant. He had no qualms about having sex with a prostitute. And we won't see it for a few more verses, but he didn't just think she was a prostitute because she was in the bad part of town. He thought she was a cult prostitute. Which means that he wasn't just having sex with her to have sex with her. He was having sex with her as a means of worship to one of the false Canaanite gods. It was adultery and idolatry. The very reason why the offspring of the woman weren't supposed to marry a Canaanite because they would go after the Canaanite gods. And Judah's having sex on the side of the road with a prostitute as a form of worship. And at the time of his idolatrous adultery, he didn't have anything to pay her with. And so he gave her his staff and his cord and his signet ring. Those are items you wouldn't just give away to people. Those were symbols of who he was, symbols of his status and his authority. It kind of reminds me of when Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup, right? Judah is giving away the symbols of his birthright in order to have sex with who he thinks is a prostitute. Tamar had other plans, though. This wasn't just a pledge, a security against a loan for her. Because there was a bigger debt that she wanted him to pay. Verse 19, then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adalamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let, us, let her keep the things as her own. 
or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Judah's far from repentant at this point. He, doesn't, he has no remorse for what he's done. His main concern is just avoiding embarrassment that he got tricked by a prostitute. A few months go by. Judah probably wouldn't even remember his dalliance if it wasn't for the fact that he was missing his staff and his signet. But you can't hide a pregnancy forever. Not that Tamar was trying or planning to hide this one anyways, but eventually it becomes obvious that she is pregnant. And so people see this and they go to Judah and they say, hey, Tamar is pregnant and we know you haven't given her in marriage to Shayla yet, so what do you think has been going on? Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Let her be burned. Judah, you're the one who's having sex with prostitutes on the side of the road. How hypocritical is it for him to say, bring her out and let her be burned? He still has no sense of his own sin. He's been living however he wanted to live all this time, but he sees Tamar and he says, burn her. But this was exactly the sort of public confrontation that Tamar was counting on. And so you, you can imagine this crowd of villagers marching to her house and surrounding it, demanding that she be brought out to be burned. I don't know if her family was just as angry and outraged as the crowd was, or if they were distraught at the imminent death of their daughter and sister. But I imagine Tamar just quietly going to whatever hiding place she put them, pulling out the staff, and the cord, and the signet, and calmly, confidently walking out of the house with them. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Everything changed in an instant for Judah. The pieces all fell into place, and he finally recognizes how greatly he has sinned against Tamar and wronged her. Verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. All of Judah's hypocritical anger and indignation were washed away by repentance. 
Judah recognized that of the two of them, he was the greater sinner. He finally sees all the ways he sinned against her, and he sees that her sins pale in comparison to his own. Judah doesn't continue his incestuous relationship with Tamar, but he does provide for her from now on. She has twin sons, Perez and Zerah, and they are Judah's sons. They are the ones who are going to carry on his family line. Talk about a fairy tale ending, right? I mean, Tamar, or sorry, Judah is like a classic Prince Charming. No, no one is making the next Hallmark Christmas movie about Judah and Tamar. It's offensive. Judah's actions offend us. And let's be honest, the fact that he gets off so easily when he just says she's more righteous than I offends us a little too. Why should he get off so easily after everything he'd done? I mean, let's recap. He left his brothers. He married a Canaanite woman. He apparently didn't raise up any of his sons in the fear of the Lord. He left his widowed daughter-in-law out in the cold, unloved and uncared for. He had sex with temple prostitutes, committed idolatry and adultery, and was willing to kill Tamar when she only committed one of the sins he committed. It wasn't until the very last second when his sins were publicly thrown in his face that he repented. But that's just it. When he was finally confronted with his sins, he repented. That is textbook offspring of the woman behavior. He was confronted with his sin and he repented. The offspring of the women of the woman are every bit the scandalous sinners the offspring of the serpent are. The difference isn't in our actions and our behaviors. The difference is that we repent and we live in hope of the promised offspring who is to come. The Bible is full of really big ugly, life-destroying, scandalous sin. The thing is, do we see our sin that way? Big and ugly and life-destroying and scandalous. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy that he is the foremost of all sinners. We've often characterized that as, I am the worst sinner that I know. In the same vein, do I look at Judah and think, what a horrible scumbag? Or do we say like he did, I know myself and my own heart. And you know what? Judah is more righteous than I am. And what about Tamar? On the one hand, we feel for her. I mean, she could not catch a break. She was widowed twice. Not that either of her husbands were that great of a catch to begin with. Left out in the cold by the very people who were supposed to love and care for her. 
We want Tamar to have gotten better than she got. We want her to have gotten the kind of kinsman redeemer that Ruth had in Boaz. Someone to love her and to delight in caring for her. This story screams for a better kinsman redeemer than Judah. But on the other hand, the reality is she wouldn't have had any right to expect to be a part of that lineage of the offspring of the woman. She was a Canaanite, an idolater. She committed her own sins in our story. She has the ancestry and the behavior of the offspring of the serpent. Does she really belong with the offspring of the woman? The lineage of the woman, though, is a scandalous one. It is full of people who don't belong, like Tamar. That tree, that family tree that has so much hope for life and forgiveness and repentance and joy has rotten fruit on every branch. It's full of scandalous sinners. It's full of people who shouldn't be there. And that's why we belong there. We are just as scandalous a sinner as Judah, and we don't belong just as much as Tamar. These are our people. This is our family tree. I mean, some of us have more complicated relationships with our families than others. Some of you might be glad Thanksgiving is over and be dreading Christmas a few weeks away. But how many of us have earthly families that can hold a candle to this one? I mean, Shayla, how was your Thanksgiving? Well, you remember my sister-in-law slash fiance, Tamar? Yeah, you guys finally get married? Not exactly. She, uh, she pretended to be a prostitute. My dad slept with her, and she's having his twin babies. So, yeah, Thanksgiving was lots of fun. <laughs> I can't wait for Christmas. That's the family we belong in. That's our family. But you know who doesn't fit right in along with the rest of us? Is Christ. We didn't choose our families. We didn't choose this family, but he did choose this family. And he is not ashamed. Our sin is shameful. We are shameful. But he is not ashamed to take that shame on himself. He doesn't just sweep it under the carpet. He doesn't pretend that we're more noble than we really are. He doesn't hide his lineage away. He hangs a light on it. He's, you remember Judah and Tamar? Yeah, the scumbag and his daughter-in-law slash baby mama? Those are my great, 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 great grandparents. Those are my family, and they are mine. They are scandalous sinners. 
very well let me be scandalous with them. I will take their scandal and their shame upon myself, and I will bear it with them. Because the reality is Jesus didn't come to save good people. He didn't come to save people who came so close to hitting the mark, but just barely missed it. Jesus came to save scandalous sinners. He only saves scandalous sinners. Do we see our sin that way? Or do we see our sin as mundane and normal? It was just a little white lie. It was just a little fantasy. Is our sin understandable and excusable? I had a really long day at work. The kids just would not be quiet. Or am I as horrified by my sin as I am by Judah's? Maybe better yet, am I as horrified by my sin as I am by the person two rows over? Or the person who lives down the street? Jesus came to save the most scandalous sinners. Martin Luther once wrote to his friend Philip Melanchthon, if the mercy is true, the sin must be true sin, not an imaginary one. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and sin boldly, but trust in Christ more boldly still. And rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. Sin boldly. He's not saying sin with abandon. Sin with no thought to the cost or the consequences. He's not saying sin so that grace may abound. He's saying call your sin what it is. Recognize it for what it is. It is ugly and scandalous. Don't say, yeah, I'm not that. I, I need Jesus' help a little bit. No, I am a wretched sinner. I have nothing to bring to the table. Jesus doesn't save imaginary sinners, only scandalous ones. Jesus came to save the Judas and the Tamars of the world. He came to save the greedy and the unloving, the idolater, and the adulterer. He came to save those who don't deserve a Savior and who don't belong with him. My sin is every bit as scandalous as Judah's. The fact that I get off as easily as I do is every bit as scandalous and offensive as the fact that Judah got off so easily with his. We are scandalous sinners and we have a scandalous gospel. We are just as much the outcast that Tamar was. None of us deserve to be here. And yet by the grace of God, here we are. And we have a better kinsman redeemer than Tamar did in Judah. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. No one is too far gone for him. No one is too undeserving. He delights in caring for the outcast.
He is the Messiah promised of old, the one that God promised in the garden would one day crush the head of the serpent. He will be battered and bruised. He will be bitten by the serpent, but he will prevail and destroy death and sin. I warned you that your sin would bring death, and it has, but there is life and hope to come. Eve, you will know pain in childbirth, but it's through childbirth that you will all be saved. One of your offspring is coming. He will wage war against the serpent. His death will bring life and righteousness to his family. He is coming. And he has come. He has come to save the most scandalous sinners like you and me. If you're already a follower of Christ, this Advent should be a time when you recognize your, your sin for the scandal that it is and recognize that Jesus already knew that when he came. He came because your sin is so scandalous. This Advent is a time for us to recognize that and to recognize that we can rejoice and trust in him more boldly still. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, know this, he came to save people just like you. No one is too far gone. No one has been cast out too far. He has come to save the lost and the sinner. No one is too shameful. No one is too broken. If he can save people like Judah and Tamar, if he can save people like me, he can save anyone. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are sinners, that we are as wretched as Judah, that we don't belong as much as Tamar, and yet those are the very people you came to save. And as we enter into Advent next week, we realize that we live in eager anticipation as much as, those, as much as those who are waiting for your first coming. Because you have already come, you have already revealed the fullness of the righteous and the mercy of God, and yet we are still waiting for you. We are waiting for our Messiah to come. And Lord, you have promised that you are coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.